The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, hey, Cal Newport is a professor of computer science at Georgetown University. He also writes about the, the intersections of technology and work and, and living what he calls a, a deep life. He's written several books. Maybe you've heard of his most famous one. It's called Deep Work. Maybe some of you have heard of that. I think his most recent one is called A World Without Email, which sounds amazing, right? Um, and I was combing through one of his older books this past week, and I came to the realization that I've been reading Cal Newport since before I knew Cal Newport was Cal Newport. All right. Um, see, back when I was in grad school 20 years ago, I stumbled upon a blog. Do you guys remember blogs? <laughs> I stumbled upon a blog called Study Hacks back then. And this Study Hacks blog was all about tips and tricks, you know, for uh, optimizing your, your time in college or grad school or whatever it was. And I was skimming through this book recently by Newport, and it dawned on me this is actually the same stuff that he was writing about 20 years ago on the Study Hacks blog. Uh, there, there was another blog that I, I followed back then called Life Hacker. Anybody remember Life Hacker as a blog? Nobody? Okay. Um, apparently, I was really into hacks, but I think we all are. Uh, my 10-year-old, Vivian, was pointing out to me recently that there's a, a channel on YouTube, or, or maybe it's a genre, I don't know how this works, um, called Mom Hacks, all right? And I'm sure dads, it's Father's Day, I'm sure, we can probably find some ourselves if we go out there, find some, some dad hacks or something like that. Um, we love hacks, we love tips and tricks to improve our lives, make it a little easier, make things run a little bit smoother, um, you know, get ahead at, at school or work or whatever. But listen, there's a temptation. There's a temptation to understand the book of Proverbs like this. Just tips and tricks on how to make incremental, uh, small, but important improvements in your life. There, there's a temptation to, to treat the book of Proverbs like biblical life hacks, right? But Proverbs is, is way more significant than that. Now, the, the wisdom here is, is far more weighty. It's far more consequential than that. In fact, what we're going to see from this text today is that wisdom calls out to everyone, re- resulting in two responses, leading to two ends, all right, wisdom calls out to everyone, resulting in two responses, leading to two ends, and those ends are extremely consequential. Making your response to wisdom's call extremely consequential. Right, we're in Proverbs chapter 1. If you haven't already turned there in your copy of the scripture, we're finishing chapter 1 today. Next week we'll be in chapter 2. The week after that we'll be in chapter 3. But as we look together at the last section of Proverbs 1 today, we're going to look at it under these headings. Uh, wisdom's one call. The call. Wisdom's two responses Okay, there's two and only two responses to wisdom's call. And then wisdom's two ends. Each response leads to an end. We'll see those today too. First, wisdom's call. Look at verse 20 in chapter 1. It says, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Now, one of the first things to to recognize here is that wisdom in this text is characterized as a woman. Did you notice that? It's woman wisdom that we meet here. And we'll meet her again when we get to chapters 8 and chapters 9. But for now, and we'll talk more about her then, but um, for now, we can summarize woman wisdom as the poetic personification of God's wisdom. And therefore, she represents God. 
Another way to, to say it is that woman wisdom is the personification of God's attribute of wisdom. Now, this is difficult for, for us in some ways because most of us are not very well versed in poetry, let alone Hebrew poetry, all right? We're not super comfortable. I'm not super comfortable with figurative language in my, my normal life, okay? Um, but but we're, we're actually probably better at it than we think when we consider some of the other metaphors for God with respect to his relationship with his people in the scriptures, like warrior or father or shepherd, king, spouse. All these point to various aspects of his divine character. Woman wisdom is similar. Doesn't mean God's a female any more than we can reduce God down to simply being a warrior. But rather, what we have here is poetic personification, woman wisdom. And she calls out, doesn't she? She, she cries aloud in the streets, in the markets, in the public square. She's there right in the middle of the hustle and bustle of life. In other words, she's everywhere. She's bold. She, she knows how to get your attention. Right? She pleads passionately. She cries aloud. She raises her voice. She cries out. She's a public figure. Making her claims in the midst of everyday life. See, right smack dab in the middle of it all, wisdom makes her call. Why? Well, that's, that's where people are. God's wisdom, okay, you don't have to go off into the desert. You don't have to go to a deserted island or find a cabin in the woods with no electricity. You don't need some elaborate plan or destination for encountering God and his wisdom. You don't need more quiet time per se or for life to just settle down a little bit. God's wisdom calls out in the midst of it all, loud and clear. He's not holding out on you. Um, your busy life is not a barrier to you encountering God. It's the context for it. He calls out in the midst of it. He, he's not waiting for you to, to get the login details just right and the password punched in so you can finally tune into that program, right? No, wisdom's call, wisdom's one call goes out loud and clear to everyone, everywhere. Woman wisdom, we might say, is a street preacher. Now, when you and I hear street preacher, we probably think of something like this. You ever seen anything like this? I have. I mean, just go walk around outside Memorial Stadium sometime before a football game. You'll, you'll, by the way, never do that, okay? Just don't. Never do it, all right? Also, don't pay too, too close attention to that list. I don't know what this guy's got against country music. I don't know what this guy's got against rock and roll music or sports, but there's a lot of things that are wrong going on up there, okay, just so we're all on the same page. But that's one type of street preacher. It's, it's the one who says, sinners, hellfire awaits, right? There's a time and a place for that. It's not... It's not there or then, just, just so we know, okay? But there's a time and a place for the message that sinners, hellfire awaits. But here at the end of Proverbs 1, we're, we're presented with a different type of street preacher. The, the street preacher here, woman wisdom, she doesn't address you as sinner. She addresses you as son. Remember verse 8 and verse 10? My son. That, that's the addressee of the book of Proverbs for the most part. And the message isn't sinners, hellfire awaits, but rather, my son, my daughter, don't be foolish. 
Don't be foolish. It's, and and I, I want to be careful with how I say this. It's a different type of evangelism. Or, maybe better, pre-evangelism, if you prefer. See, God doesn't just call out to us in our sinfulness. He calls out to us in our foolishness, too. Doesn't mean we're not sinful. We are. We all are. And before we become a Christian, we must repent of sin and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. You simply cannot become a Christian without that. But also, God is so awesome. He is so wise and loving and effective that he is able to get our attention, not simply by pointing out our sin and convicting us of it, but also by pointing out our folly and the foolishness of our ways. There's a sense in which this is a part of my story and coming to faith in Jesus. Um, when I was finishing up my undergrad at UNL, junior or senior year, I hit a point, I was not a Christian then, uh, and I hit a point where I was about to graduate, I was about to marry Megan, we've been dating since high school, I got this great job offer, we're going to move to St. Louis, going to make all this money, you know, going to do all that sort of stuff. Um, everything was, was coming together. And yet I felt extremely empty. I, I had everything, and it felt like I had nothing. And I, you know, I partied a lot back then, started asking the question sort of internally, and then with, with Megan, you know, where am I going to find joy for like the rest of my life? You know, I, I've been drinking, getting drunk, part of that whole life, and just was coming to realize, like, that is not, that's not going to satisfy me. It's not going to do it. It's not going to deliver. Got this great job offer, got a, got a wife, going to make money, all these, everything that I've been working so hard for, Come to realize like, it's, it's not going to deliver either. And I believe, looking back now, that was woman wisdom calling out to me. I didn't really have conviction over sin in my life yet, but God was getting my attention. In his grace, he was revealing to me the path that I was on and the futility that awaited. He was showing me that all that I was searching for, all that I'd been working so hard for, most of which I was about to get... It was never going to be enough. I needed something more. I needed him. I needed him. That's when we started going to church. It was my wife's idea. I mean, echoes from her youth and her childhood and growing up in the church. She, she heard me process this. She's like, I think we're supposed to be a church. You know, so we started going, started seeking a different way. Got to St. Louis, and eventually I did come under loads of conviction for my sinful ways and, and the ways I was living. Cried out for forgiveness through Jesus and became a Christian. Got saved, right? But it began with woman wisdom's call. Right in the hustle and bustle of ordinary life. Look at verse 22. It says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Now, notice this. Woman wisdom here addresses the simple but only makes reference to the scoffer and the fool here. Her, her main address is going to the simple. And if you look up your page, maybe you're on the prior page in your scripture to chapter 1, verse 4, this is one of the goals of Proverbs. Do you remember this? To give prudence, verse 4 says, which we said was basically a synonym for wisdom, to give prudence or wisdom to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. See, Proverbs is written in large part addressing the simple, the still being shaped and formed, the son 
Remember last week we said we all can take on the, the, the role of the son as we read the book of Proverbs and hear God's wisdom for us. A scoffer, on the other hand, is the person who is aggressively confident in their anti-wisdom ways. They're hardened. So hardened that they delight in their own scoffing. And then the fool, the third type of person mentioned in verse 22, that's somewhere in between the spectrum of simple and scoffer. A fool is someone who is thick-headed and doesn't listen. He's, he's on the wrong path and, and headed towards becoming a hardened scoffer. But the simple, the simple are still trying to find their way a little bit. They're still being shaped and formed. And yet the how long of verse 22 indicates they're trending in the wrong direction. Bruce Waukee in his commentary on Proverbs says that these are folks who should have made a commitment to the way of the wise by now. How long? But instead of embracing the teaching, they become, this is his phrase, fledgling apostates. <laughs> They're in danger of becoming fools. And, and, and look, at, look at the text. Not because they hate wisdom, but rather because they love being simple. They're holding, they're holding on to their options. They're, they're undercommitted and therefore open to alluring folly and sin. They're kind of into this God thing, kind of not. Maybe they'll settle down one day and give more attention to him, but for now, they're doing their own thing. They're simple. And this, pointedly, is who wisdom, woman wisdom calls out to. It might be you. You might be here today and be 10 years old or 14 years old or 18 years old or 25 years old, still being shaped and formed and yet still sort of keeping your options open. Not, not sure about all this Jesus stuff that your parents are really into and bring you along for. Look, you might be here and be 30 or 44 or 68 and be in the exact same boat. You're older in years, but still simple. I don't mean that in an insulting way whatsoever. But you're here, and you're kind of not here. You're kind of holding back. You're curious about God, but you're not ready to surrender your whole life to him. And woman wisdom is calling to you today. Woman wisdom is. She says, the way you're heading is not good. It's never going to satisfy and listen, God wants you to come face to face with your sin and cry out to Jesus for forgiveness and all that. Yes, but possibly even before that, he's calling out to you today and saying, my son, my daughter, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. What you're seeking, what you're so longing for, you'll only ever truly find in me. Nothing else will fill that emptiness. And nothing else is going to ultimately satisfy it. <laughs> so wisdom's one call goes out. It goes, right, it goes out right in the middle of the hustle and bustle of life. And it may just be going out and settling on you today. And there's two responses to this call. We see them in verses 23 through 31. And the whole point here, addressing the simple, is to warn the simple from becoming a fool. One who hates knowledge, verse 22. Or a scoffer. One who scoffs, who mocks at the wisdom of God. So two responses. Number one, turn, okay? 
heed the voice, heed the wisdom of woman wisdom, or two, refuse. Look at verse 23. 23 says, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. We're going to come back to that. That's one response. We'll look at the other one first. Verse 24. Because I have called and you refuse to listen. Have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I'll mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. I want to draw out four things that mark this response, okay? Refusal, absurdity, urgency, and severity. First, refusal. Look look at verse 24, the, the, the culpability of the one who responds this way. I've called, woman wisdom says, but you refuse to listen. And then she ticks it up a notch. Not only did I call, I reached, I stretched out my hand. But you didn't, you didn't heed it. You ignored it. This is the imagery. We notice a hand stretched out to us, don't we? You see it. You can see a hand stretched out, but it's been ignored. You didn't heed it. You ignored my call, she says. The word translated ignore here is even stronger than probably our English word. It means to flout, to, to openly disregard, to, to almost scoff. There's a blatant refusal of wisdom's repeated call here. And that refusal, it's actually absurd. Right? Now, it's, it's kind of strange to read verse 26, isn't it? Where woman wisdom says, I'm going I'm to laugh at your calamity, a mock when terror strikes you. What is going on here? That doesn't sound like God. I mean, is God, is this saying that he's cold-hearted? Is he cruel? Is he like a bully on the playground? vindictive well first we should notice here that god is not laughing at the simple you see this you know you know the saying i'm not laughing at you i'm laughing with you you know um it's parents you know that one (laughs) yeah yeah you do um it's kind of like that except the person being laughed with okay the simple isn't laughing at themselves they're laughing in a sense at god and god's laughing with them but his laughter is different too God's laughter here is not at the one who refuses to listen to wisdom. His laughing is at the calamity brought on by the refusal. A provocative way to say it would be to say that God laughs at the stupidity of fools. It's God saying, I'm offering you everything here. Everything you desire. I am everything you desire. I created you. I created the world. I I know how it works. I know what's best for you. And I've I've told you how to live in accordance with my created world because I love you. And you're going to (laughs) refuse? You must be kidding. You've got to be kidding me. That's the sense. 
And then because of the refusal, added to the, absurd, added to the absurdity, there's an urgency here. You see it in verse 28. Right? There is going to come a time, woman wisdom says, where you'll, where you'll call on me and I won't answer. No one's going to be laughing then. You're going to seek me diligently and you won't find me. In other words, eventually, it's going to be too late to turn. Too late to change your response. And we don't really like this, you know. Uh, we prefer language of like Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Okay, we like the idea of a, a perpetual invitation. God's there, I'll get to him eventually. Give me a break already, I got a lot going on, you know. Um, there's just so many other things I need to attend to right now. My social life. I'm still in college. Come on, give me a break. I'll settle down with God later. My career. It needs my attention. I, I ain't got time for this God stuff. I got I to gotta get settled in my career and make some money and provide for my family. Or my pleasure. Listen, I'm just not done having fun in this life yet. And we fail to realize that there are time limits built onto the invitation that comes from God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near because he won't always be able to be found and he won't always be near if you don't respond. Fool, Jesus said in the parable of the rich fool. Fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. So you never know when the invitation of God will be retracted by sudden death and you find yourself face to face with your maker. Nor do any of us know the day or the hour when Christ will return. And then it'll be too late. It could be this afternoon. I've told you this before, but I pray for it every day. I'm ready. I am so ready for Jesus to come back and you need to know I'm praying for it. I'm praying for it. These verses in Proverbs 1 sound a lot like a section in Hebrews chapter 3, which is actually a quotation from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Psalm 95 verse 7, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He's calling out today. Today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. Do not refuse to listen. Don't ignore the stretched out hand of your good father, the good shepherd. Heed this urgently. Because there's coming a day when, verse 28, they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Why? Verse 29. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all of my reproof. Now get this connection here, okay, because what I don't want you to think is that we're stripping down Christianity to just making good choices in your life and being a good person and not doing anything stupid, all right? Woman wisdom says here that rejecting wisdom is the same thing as rejecting the Lord. That's severe, and if that's the way that you're living, the word of God says this morning, you're in a severe storm warning. 
It's not a watch. It's a warning because it's coming. It's coming. Calamity, verse 26. Terror, same verse. Verse 27, when terror strikes you like a form, uh, like a storm, or, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. I looked up the Hebrew on that little word whirlwind there. Um, it, it, it's not like one of those little dust devils that you see sometimes out in the country roads in Nebraska. It's like, that's strange. Look at that. That's kind of fun and cute. It's just whirling around a little bit, and you don't have to worry about it. No, this is like F5 tornado. Certain destruction. A severe storm. Now, here's the thing. A severe storm in your life isn't necessarily something terrible coming your way. Death of a loved one, serious injury, medical diagnosis, losing all your money. Certainly a severe storm can look like that. Sometimes, though, a severe storm looks like crazy success in your life. I think that's part of what's intended in verse 31. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way, have their fill of their own devices, this past Monday night, the Denver Nuggets won the NBA championship. Uh, I don't know if you guys are into that. That's a Super Bowl professional basketball for any lay folk in here, right? Um, the pinnacle achievement of the sport, all right? Um, there's players who work from the time they're five, work their entire life, coaches who work their entire lives to, to get to this thing, to achieve this championship and, and never even make it to the game, right? Never even make it to the series. Well, after the game, the coaches and the players haven't even hit the locker room yet. And Lisa Salters, a, a reporter for ESPN, uh, she's interviewing Michael Malone. He's the head coach for the Nuggets. And she says something like, Coach, Coach, you've, you've been around basketball your entire life. All the, all the hard work, all the sacrifices. You know, how does this trophy make it all worth it, she asks. And Coach Malone, he says, all the hard work, all the sacrifices, it all culminated in winning this championship, but we're not satisfied we won. And then he starts shouting, we want more, we want more. <laughs> Don't you see, you can reach the absolute top and it's still not enough. You can have it all. You can have your fill of your own devices, even good ones, and still not be satisfied. And that's just as destructive of a storm. It's just as severe of a situation. And if that's the kind of storm that you're in right now, the urgency is just the same. See, Proverbs tells us here there's one call. There's two responses. There's urgency to your responses because there's severity wrapped up in your response and there will come a day when you can no longer change your response. The first response is refusal. The second response is turning. Now the author here of Proverbs gives a lot more time and attention to the refusal. That's why we did too. But look, there, back in verse 23, here's the turning. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. This is the desired response. Turn. 
It's one of the most important words in the entire Bible. Turn. If you're one of the simple, right? If you're on the fence, maybe trending in a foolish direction, God's word comes to you today and offers to you a fresh turn. How? Well, by simply saying, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I was going the wrong way, but I've turned to you now. I'm yours, all of me. I'm ready to leave my foolish ways behind and trust you and follow you. And there's a part of us that's intimidated by that. We know ourselves well enough to know, you know, it's Sunday morning. I can turn right now. Um, But tomorrow, you know, next week, I'm going to be tempted to turn back. In fact, maybe you've tried turning before and you did turn back again. And now you, you know how weak you are. You want to turn, but you, you just know you don't, have, you don't have what it takes to stay turned. Here's the good news from God to you. It's right there in this verse. I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. In other words, I'll give you everything it takes. All you have to do is turn. Some of you will recognize the language here being eerily similar to the new covenant promises that we read in our um, assurance element of the liturgy earlier this morning from Ezekiel 36. It goes like this. This is the promise to all who turn. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. I heard Ray Ortland sum Ezekiel 36 up one time as saying, batteries included. God will give you everything that you need to truly stay turned. He'll give you a new heart. He'll pour out his spirit, cause you to walk in his ways, give you a new power, give you strength to do that. He'll even make his words known to you. He will make you wise. Hmm. Wisdom's one call. Wisdom's two responses. Lastly now, wisdom's two ends. The the end of the response of refusal is, is death and destruction. Verse 32, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. All right, so eternal death and destruction when you die or when Jesus returns, yes, but also like we said last week, a thousand deaths between now and then too, because that way is never going to satisfy you. If the Apostle Paul had written the book of Proverbs, it would have sounded this way, the wages of foolishness is death. Don't turn away. Don't remain complacent. Wisdom is calling to you. Don't ignore it. His hand is stretched out. Heed it. Don't ignore the counsel. Turn at the reproof. Turn to Jesus. And when you do, the end 
of the response of turning? Verse 33. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. (laughs) Isn't that what we all long for at like the subterranean level of our soul? To dwell secure. To be safely at home. To be really, truly secure, satisfied, safe. Intellectually. Relationally. Emotionally. Physically. Spiritually. It's the longing for shalom that God has hardwired into us. When you turn and trust in Jesus, you are. You dwell securely with him. Nothing ultimately can jeopardize that. You belong to him, and you always will. Which also leaves you in a place of ease. Do you see that word in the text? Ease. Without dread of disaster, Like, nothing can come your way that he won't ultimately take care of, not even death. When you know that, man, when when you believe that, there's an ease that fills you. It's not complacency. Ease here is contrasted with complacency. Complacency is counterfeit ease because it's not secure. It still dreads disaster. But for those who turn, security and ease, listen, no fear. No fear. You know, I've never regretted becoming a Christian. Never. All those years ago when I was feeling empty and woman wisdom called out to me, there was a turn in my life. Wasn't the straightest turn ever, okay? Just letting you know. Um, God's people probably made cleaner turns than that. I feel like I was maybe on a roundabout for a little while there and hit the curb a few times. Um, But eventually, that curvy turn from my foolishness turned into a real turn of repentance and faith, and I trusted in Jesus. And I've never regretted it. Never regretted becoming a Christian. Sure, there's moments, there's been days, seasons where I haven't been a very good one. There have been times when I felt very far from God or as if he was very far from me, even angry at God or confused by him. But underneath all of those subjective feelings of distance or inadequacy or frustration, there's always been an objective base a satisfying and safe, objective base at the deepest level of who I am. Which has meant when things have been difficult financially, for example, and all the anxiety that comes with, the real anxiety that comes with that, that you and I feel when things are, you know, we're not sure how everything's going to get paid for, right? Even in the midst of that, at the base I'm still okay. I'm learning how to be content with little or much. And I have Jesus, right? So if I lose my job and can't pay my bills and end up at the, at the center downtown, 
for a season to get back on my feet? I got Jesus. Can't take him away. Or when someone has died that I loved, or when my, one of my best friends from high school took his life and I was super confused. All those feelings of grief and pain and confusion, they're all real. Those don't magically go away because you're a Christian. And yet, underneath the grief, underneath the pain and the confusion, there's a base. And you can be satisfied in Jesus because there's a base. When I've had to come to terms with my wife's chronic illness or when we've been faced with challenges in parenting or friendships that have ended or politics blowing up the church <laughs> or, or people saying things that weren't true about me. You know, like, even in the midst of that, lots of real feelings there and yet a base underneath all of that. A base. You can still be satisfied in Jesus. He still says in the midst of all those things in your life, I love you. I made you. I'm with you. I'm everything you need. And I'm not going anywhere. Jesus said it this way. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn. Turn. Like if you're here and you're, again, you're 10, 14, 18, 25, and riding the fence on Christianity, right? If you're simple to use the word from our text, and I, I don't, I, I mean that in the gentlest way. I mean that in the most biblical way. It's a non-derogatory, non-self-deprecating, honest and loving term. If you're here and you're 35 or 55 and 75 and have never fully trusted in Jesus, even if everyone in this room thinks you have, but you've been posing, Turn. Turn. It's not too late. One day it will be, but today it's not. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then if you're here this morning and you have turned, you're trusting in Jesus, you've been walking with him for a while now, years, decades perhaps, you've got that objective security we're talking about in verse 33, you've got the subjective security too, the ease and the no dread of disaster, if you're wise, to use the, the term from, from Proverbs. Remember chapter one, verse five? Let the wise hear and increase in learning. See, even if simple isn't your identity anymore, there are tendencies of simple still in all of us. 
If you're secure, even if you're secure in Christ, we're not just prone to wander, we're prone to foolishness. You know, Martin Luther coined the, the phrase uh, simultaneously sinful, simultaneously just, meaning even once we're justified by grace through faith in Jesus, even after there's no condemnation for us, there's still sin in us. We're not perfected yet. We're being perfected. That's part of the Christian life, but we will not, that process isn't going to be done until Jesus comes back. So simultaneously sinful, he said, no one's perfect, and yet simultaneously just, justified by the blood of Jesus. This is part of why Luther taught all of life is repentance. Well, it's also true that we are simultaneously simple and simultaneously just. And so while there's a decisive turn that happens at salvation every day, every moment we're turning, we're trusting. Simultaneously simple, simultaneously just. We need to heed God's wisdom and grow in it and walk in it moment by moment. And so if that's you, ask yourself this morning, are there any areas in my life where I've grown complacent? Any areas where I'm maybe living a bit more simple or even foolish than I am wise? Any reproof I need to hear? Any turning I need to do? If so, now's the time for you too. Let's all turn to Jesus now in prayer together. Uh, Father, we all turn to you. Some of us turn maybe even for the first time and you open wide your loving arms and receive us. Think of the words of Psalm 86 that Adam led some of us in prayer early this morning to him that you are, you are good and, and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call on you. You hear our pleas for grace. And so, Father, would your abounding and steadfast love be poured out today on all who would call on you, even for the first time. But also for those who would call on you even for the tenth time this weekend. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Oh, God, would you guard us from foolishness. Make us instead to... Dwell secure. Secure in Jesus. Without dread of disaster. Or like Psalm 112 says, not afraid of bad news. Lord, make our hearts firm and trusting in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.